0: Um, yeah, I just want to start off um and to say, if last week was your first week with us, um I'm glad that you're back I'm glad that you're back here uh as we look over the course of the next few weeks uh you know, I just want to lead out with um today we're going to talk about money, so uh I hope that you'll give us a chance to hear about what God says about money and Yeah, and next week we're going to talk about death and stuff like that. So these three weeks are just, this is our church growth series right here. So uh, bow your heads with me and we'll pray and we'll go to God's word. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come to you right now and we come with a request. Lord, we pray for your power um, and we need your power because as we talk about money, Father, it is alluring. It's so... Attractive. It attractive. It, it has this pull on all of us here in this room in some way, shape, or form, and what we need is more than just perspective or words, Father, but we really need your power to set us free, and so we pray that you would do that right now. Father, help us to enjoy the gifts that you've provided for us. Fill us with gratitude and generosity. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, yeah, about nine and a half years ago, before my wife and I were getting ready to move to Atlanta, um, uh, we weren't making a ton of money. Um, and I don't know why I use the past tense. It's not like I'm making tons of money right now, but yeah, yeah we made less money than we, we did back then. Um, and so we had this plan that my wife was going to save up all of her sick days um, and cash them out so that as we, we moved here, we would have funds in the bank. And so Friday, I wake up, I go to the computer, and I look, and I kind of see this thing on the screen. And so I spend my time trying to get this smudge off of the screen as I look at my bank statement, I say, Chandra, come here, what's this on the screen? And she, she says, Sha- uh, John, that's not a smudge, that's a comma. Now, I was used to seeing commas in books But not as it comes to my bank statement, right? You have to have like $1,000 to see a comma. And on the left side of that comma, there was a larger amount than I thought. And so immediately, I was filled with all of this hope. Our problems are solved. All of them. And then Chandra calls in and finds out that they made a clerical mistake. Um, And it didn't take them... Uh, much time to pull it back out, uh, they got it right back out. And immediately, all the hope that I had uh, turned into hurt and disappointment. And I think that it was at that point that it was clearest to me how much I loved money. I love money. And I think that we all love money, Right. And so here's what I mean by it. We love it in, in 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 this sense. We always see it in its best light, right? While we know deep down in our hearts that money isn't the root of all of our problems, we do have this keen way of seeing the role that money can play in our solutions, right? Uh, Swoop, the guy here that was playing the keys, he has this uh, song out where the hook goes, I know money can't buy happiness, but I wouldn't mind crying in a Lambo. <laughs> right? I know, I know money is not the cause of all of my problems, but if I have to cry, I would love to do it in a foreign car so that I could be the envy of all of my friends. We have this sense where we see money in the best light, and here's what I mean, that when it comes to money, I think you and I are optimists. We overestimate its power to to make us joyful and we underestimate the problems that it brings. For three years before I became a pastor while in grad school I taught math and one thing that I learned about math is sometimes equations really help us to see these truths and so I'm gonna put one on the screen that I think we all uh, tend to think on the inside and we tend to think this, Money equals contentment, right? That we think like money is to contentment like air is to a balloon. That the more that you pump in, the bigger and bigger that it gets. And this is how we view money and contentment based on our backgrounds, regardless of what background that you came from. If you grew up poor, then you knew just how many of your problems were brought about by a lack of money. If you grew up rich, then you knew the pleasure that can come from numbing your pain by buying things. If you grew up middle class like me, then you had just enough money uh, not really to see a bunch of its downfalls, but too little to really be able to just go to the store and buy things. And so what it does is it fills you with envy. So regardless of what your background is, I think all of us tend to live this life in pursuit of money. If you're in college, you have your mindset on, I've got to do this stuff so that I can get this job, so that I can have more of it. If you have a job that you don't like, then your concern is, I've got to get a better job. If you have a job that you like and enjoy, then your thoughts are on, how can I advance? If you're getting ready to retire, then your thoughts are, how can I set things up in such a way to where I don't have to worry about money? If you get in an accident, you're concerned about when the payouts are going to come. If you're a parent and you're not concerned about your money, you're concerned about your kids' money. We tend to, e- we tend to equate money with contentment. And I just want you to know that the Bible doesn't do that. Now, what I do want to lead off with this is that the Bible doesn't condemn money. It does not condemn folks that are rich. What the Bible does is it clarifies our perspective on money. The perspective that many of us has, have has been photoshopped. And what the Bible does is it clears it all away. It takes off The makeup. So we all know and have heard the phrase that the love of money is the root of all evil. And the New Testament is clear on that. And it tells us that. But in the passage that we're going to read today, we're going to see not just that the money is the root of all evil, but why the love of money is the root of all evil. This is God's attempt to save us. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 8. And as we get there, I'm just going to set a little bit of context on the book. Chapters 1 through 4 of this book is really the autobiography of a man who tries to get it all. And what he says at the end of the day is he says, Man, trying to find contentment by getting things in this world is like one person preacher said trying to start a wind collection I can chase it I can try to grab it but it seems like I have nothing to show for all of my work chapters 1 through 4 is the autobiography chapter 5 starts on in the advice 1 through 4 is he saying this is how I messed up my life don't do that chapter 5 he picks up and towards the end of the book it's more wisdom. This is what you should do. This is what your life should look like. And the point that he's going to make here is this. Everyone who chases money turns their back on contentment. Everyone who chases money turns their back on contentment. Chases it and pursues it as that's what you love. You love. So his aim is you don't find contentment by chasing money. You flee contentment by chasing money. To chase money is, in a sense, to run away from contentment. Like you can't go north and south at the same time. That's his point as we get here to the fifth chapter. And just one quick thing before we start here is we're going to go through this text from 5, 8 to chapter 6, verse 9. And I'm only going to bring up this point because it'll help you with this text. And it'll help you to study a lot more of your Bible. This text is laid out as what's called a chiasm. And what that is, is a chiasm is this. When you and I talk and make points, we tend to make points, make points, make points. And then at the end, we get to the point of what we're trying to say. The chiasm is is not like that. It's built more like a sandwich, right? Where, you know, the bread is on the outside, the condiments are on the inside, and then the best part, the meat, is in the middle. Unless you're a vegetarian, then all that's left is sadness and disappointment in the middle. (laughs) But for those of us that love meat, the meat is in the middle, and this is the way that this text is laid out. And so I've put it on the screen in color so that you can see how this lays out, right? So the outside, 5, 8, 6, 7, through 9, that's one point, right? It's going to be on the outside. Then the next point's going to come in and it's going to be 5, 13, and 6, 1 through 6. And then our last point, the meat, is going to be right there in the middle. So as I jump around, I just want you to make sense of it. Think of it like a pyramid. The point is in the middle. I went too long, but I think that'll help us as we get to this text. Everyone who chases money turns their back on contentment, and here's his first point. The very first thing that he's going to help us see that is this, is that the love of money is not just the root of all evil, but the love of uh, money actually leads you down a road to emptiness. The love of money, it's pursuit. It doesn't bring fullness. It leads you down a road towards emptiness. 5 verse 8 so often says this. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. Right, We've Talked about this before, earthly justice is distorted. If you see poor people being taken advantage of, don't be shocked as if I can't believe that this is going on. What he's saying is, no, 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 listen. The justice that we have here on the earth is distorted. But look what takes place here. He says, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over, over, over them. What he means is that people look out for one another and this corruption likely goes all the way up to the top. In the same way that you see things in the sex trade or sports scandals or that. You see people that look out for one another, this corruption goes all the way to the top. And then uh, verse 9, but this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. That point there at the end is not like, it's not saying just disregard all of that stuff. He's saying, although an earthly justice system may be distorted, it's still better than anarchy, right? But all of that, it's not even the main point of the text. I just didn't want to skip through that. But as he's getting ready to talk about Money, the first thing that he does is not bring about the advantage of it. The first thing that he does is show the ugly side of it. And he shows that wherever there is oppression or people being held down, do you know what lies at the heart of that? Greed. The love of money, the pursuit of money. Money is not as pretty, and the love of it is not as put together as we think that it is. So he starts there, and then he helps us see that the love of money is actually the road to emptiness. Starting here in verse 10, it says this. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. The love of money leads you down the road towards emptiness. His very first line is this. Anybody that loves money is never going to find contentment. Regardless of how much that he makes. And this is important because when it talks about contentment and money, the Bible never talks about amount. The Bible talks about affection. Where is your heart? And that's different than you and I think. When we think of the contentment that comes from money, we think of an amount. We have a number in our head. What's yours? What is the amount of money that you said If I just had this, I would be okay. Do you know what John Rockefeller's was? At one time, the richest man in the world. He was asked by folks, how much money is enough? And he said, just a little bit more. If you love money, if you chase it, you have to turn your back on contentment to get that love. The Bible never talks about contentment in terms of amount, but affection. And you may be here and say, well, John, I don't love money. I love God. And to that, I would say, I think that you do love money. I think that we all love money in some sense. And here's why I say that. How do I know if I love money? Christ says, where you're... Treasure is, there your heart will be also. Christ also says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. What do you tend to talk about the most? How often does money and worry and angst about it come up in your conversation? How much does planning for it come up? Who do you... Admire most in the world? Who do you ignore? What's the motivation for your work? What's the motivation for your worry? What keeps you up at night? What makes you feel secure? What makes you feel vulnerable? If money is the answer to all of those questions or most of them, it may be an indicator that in our hearts, That we love money. We have an affection for it. And this leads off and it says, no, anybody that loves it is never going to find contentment. Do you know why? Here's what money does. It leads you down a road towards emptiness. Look here at verse 11. It says this, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them go? The more money that you get, the more people take your your money. You didn't have to have an accountant when you didn't have any money. But the more that you have, the more that you have to pay somebody to take care of stuff. You didn't have to pay anybody to clean your house when you lived in a shoebox. But when you got that big house in Buckhead... What takes place is you can't clean it all on yourself. There was a Sports Illustrated article that came out years ago, and it chronicled Mike Tyson, and it said at one point in his life, he owned four houses, and he paid half a million dollars per year in lawn care. Mike ain't cutting all that grass, right? Listen, money and the love of it leads us down the road to emptiness because the more of it that you get, all that you really get is a front row seat to see people take your money. Look, look here at verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. What he's saying is, all right, he may have overstated his point when he said, Money leads just down a road towards emptiness. Here's what else takes place. It fills you with worry. What he's saying, it's, it's easy to sleep at night when you don't have nothing. But when you get that new car and you love that new car and you loan that new car to somebody else and they don't bring it home before you go to bed, it makes it harder for you to go to sleep. When you buy that new house, when you get that new stuff, and you leave on vacation, you constantly check to think, did I lock my doors? Did I turn on the alarm? He's saying that the more that we have, it fills us with worry. Listen, he's not condemning money. He's taking off the makeup so that you and I have a realistic picture. Chapter 6, verse 7 and 9. Verse 7 through 9, he says this, All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This is also vanity and a striving After the win, at the end of the day, he says, really, at the end of the day, you work to buy food, to feed a stomach that is going to be hungry in the morning, that's going to need you to go back to work to be able to provide food, to feed it, that is going to be hungry. And he's saying all of our work, all the stuff that we do is really in, in this strange sense to make sure. We have food so that we can go back out and work. The more that we have, the more we get to see it go. The more that we have, the more we have to worry about. And then we reflect on the end of the day. I've worked and worried for nothing. sobers us. The love of money leads down this road of emptiness. That's all that it gives. If you love it, and this is your pursuit, what he's saying, at the end of the day, you're not going to have anything to show for it. Is that true of you right now? Do you go through the weeks and come to the weekend and feel tired and exhausted and frustrated and then wake up on Monday morning and feel just as depressed that you've got to get back up and to start this week? Do you live a life where you're filled with frustration and discontentment and not joy? It may not be because you don't have enough money. It may be because you love money. And if you love it, what he's saying is you're never going to have enough. It's going to lead you down this road towards emptiness. But that's not all that he says. That's just the bread on the outside. Here's the next thing that he brings out that really helps us see why it's evil and why it is that a God that loves us is trying to protect us from this love. He says this. The the next point is this, that the love of money is the beginning of a tragic ending. The love of money is the beginning of a tragic ending. If you hear a story that starts off once upon a time, you know that what will come next is a fairy tale and it will end happily ever after. What he wants us to see here is that if you see a story that starts off with there once was a man who loved money, it's going to end in tragedy. Read with me in chapter 5 starting at verse 13, and he's going to give us two evils. He says this, There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. One translation says, There's a sickening tragedy that I've seen. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture, And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. And he came from his mother's womb, or as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil or a sickening tragedy. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Verse 13 starts off and says this, there is this one man who was hurt because he kept it all. When we think of hoarding, we do so to keep us from harm. But what this text tells us is that, no, 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 there are those that in trying to hoard to keep themselves from harm. They're actually harmed by what they keep. My wife and I have been trying to adopt. And one thing that we've learned is that kids that are in foster care oftentimes will come into a house and they'll hoard food. Even all the way up to adulthood, because they've lived in an uncertain world where they don't know that things are going to be provided for them, so they'll hoard food and they'll keep it in their room until they're sure that their needs will be met. And and we're told that's that will take place. Expect it. It's harmless. As he warns us here, what he says is no, 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 no. This type of of hoarding. Is not harmless. He's saying it is harmful. And he gives this story of there's this man who was harmed because he kept all that he had. Picture is a guy that's yeah, yeah like a Scrooge McDuck, just miser, hoarding, never wants to give anything to and, and and anybody else. Keeps folks at arm's length. 14 goes on and says this but then. He lost it all in bad business. He had all his money in real estate and the economy tanked. Now, at the end of the day, this guy that kept the whole world at arm's length has nothing to provide for his sons. Um, it goes on, verse 15, and says this As he came from his mom's womb, he shall go again naked as he came, and he shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand, 16. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And then it gives us this rhetorical question. Like when you used to ask your mom for McDonald's and she said, do you have McDonald's money? We know the answer, but the point is, The point is I want you to see this and he says this. This man who kept it all to provide him safety and security and what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Nothing. He spent his life working for money thinking that it would provide him safety and security and there is nothing. C.S. Lewis says this. Don't put your hope And don't let your hope for happiness depend on something that you may lose. Hoarding hurts. Money is not permanent. It is not a non-perishable food item. It spoils. It goes bad. Everybody has to let it go at some time. And for some of us, based on no fault of our own, it'll be snatched from us. It spoils. And so if we think of money as something that spoils, it's easy for us to see how hoarding it can actually harm us. If you had a fortune of bread and you hoarded the bread, what would take place is that asset would become a liability once it's spoiled. Once that mold comes through, it's not that it's just not worth anything It's actually a liability. The same thing takes place here. Verse 17, it says this, Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation, and sickness, and anger. All of those words, darkness, sickness, vexation, are synonymous with loneliness, being by himself. If you are a hoarder and you're more concerned with money than the people that God has placed in your life that you could help buy that gift, that if you lose all the money, all that's left for you is eating a can of beans in a crate or on a crate, in an apartment with all the lights off for the rest of your days. That what he's saying is, if money is everything to you then you really have absolutely nothing. Hoarding doesn't keep you safe. It harms you. And this is why God is so good in commanding us to give and to share with all that we have. This is why it's actually a good thing to be a part of a place, to be a part of a church where there's so many people that want to do so many good things for the Lord and all that they need is money to be able to do those things. Giving, investing in good causes is actually one, 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 one of God's great means to free us from the danger of hoarding. Now, you may be here and say, well, John, the problem with this text is that he had money and life was good, but he lost it all because he put it all in a place where he could lose it. I'm not that dumb. I diversify. I put my stuff in the banks. I don't trust the banks. I hide my stuff in my mattress. His problem was that he lost it all. I'm going to make sure that I'm smart and I don't lose it all. This is not the worst case. You can be harmed by hoarding, but what's a greater curse is what takes place in 6 verses 1 through 6. Read that with me. There is an evil. Here is another tragedy that I have seen under the sun and it lies heavy on mankind a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. What he says is what's worse than hoarding and losing it all is having everything except for enjoyment. And so he brings up that there's this guy, and God gives him wealth. That there is this great gift. But he goes on and says this, but God does not give him the power to enjoy this. And here's where it should be crystal clear to us. You know, money in and of itself is not God's greatest gift. So anybody that would use the Bible and say, God has blessed you, therefore God wants to give you more. That's not the greatest gift because it's possible to have it all and not be able to enjoy it. But it brings up this one point and it says this. There's somebody who God gives him wealth because wealth and all that stuff comes from our great God, not just from our hard work. But then it says this, but God doesn't give him the power to enjoy it. Is that God being cruel? Is that God playing with this man? Like when you take food and hold it out to a baby and they lean and you constantly just pull it back so that it's outside of their grasp and they lean forward. Is that what God's doing? To give folks money and then not let them enjoy it? I don't think that it's God being mean here. I don't think that this at all speaks to God's motive, what it does speak to is it speaks to the fact that when it comes to contentment, God is the main ingredient. That there's a man that has it all, but unless God gives him the power to enjoy, he really doesn't have anything at all. This speaks just to God's role that when it comes to satisfaction, when it comes to contentment, It has nothing to do with how much that we have, but everything to do with if God gives us the power to enjoy. And we'll talk about what that means at the end. But for for the sake of time here, we don't have to speculate on why he can't enjoy and what God does. We've talked through that, right? The more that you get, the more you see it go away, the more you worry, the more that you have, the more that you chase Money, the more that opportunities to get more seem less like options and more like obligations. That if money is your pursuit and you have a chance to advance in your career or your job and get more, but it comes at the cost of your family, if you love money, that's not going to feel like a thing that you can turn down. But you'll constantly make an excuse about, why. no, I just have to take this. I just got to do this. And now all these opportunities turn into obligations and and you feel constrained and you can spend your whole life working to set yourself up in a nice place and not be able to enjoy all the stuff that God has already provided. I think that that can be clear in the text as we think about why he doesn't enjoy. But look at what takes place here in this text. He compares this man who has it all to somebody that we wouldn't think to compare him to. Verse 3, if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn is better than he or a child that is born, but never takes a breath here on earth for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness, its name is covered. All that means is that it, the life of this kid comes and goes before you can even write a name on the birth certificate. Verse five, moreover, It has not seen the sun or known anything. Look at this. Yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. He's saying that having everything except for enjoyment, being filthy rich but restless, is actually worse than not being born at all. Because in the case of somebody that's not born at all, and though it's a minor point in here, though it's a passing statement, I never come across texts like these cold as a mom that had five miscarriages with sisters and friends and sister-in-law. Having done a funeral for somebody that found themselves in this place. It seems like there's no good that can come out of that. But what he says is this. Here's the good side. Here's God's grace in something like that. That is stillborn. Never has to experience the trouble in this world. And there is rest. That there is a God that provides rest. And freedom from experiencing the troubles that lay us down. And his point is that to have that would be better than to be rich and restless. At the end of verse 3, he says that this man has no burial in this world or at this time. If you died, your kids would be the one to arrange a burial for you. And what it says is this man who had it all, had a hundred kids, doesn't have anybody that cares for him enough to arrange a funeral at the end of the day. Loving money has a way of estranging us from the people that God has put us here to care for and to love and to provide for. And his point is, any story that starts with the love of money ends in tragedy. You know, I was listening to a podcast this past week of a guy who was falsely accused for murder um, in Chicago in 1983, goes to jail. In 2007, they come out and it came out that he was falsely accused and they set him free. And at the end of the day, they gave him a check for all of the time that he wasted. And he was frustrated because he said, my, my mom died, my grandma died, my brother died, my son died, all while I was enslaved. And then at the end, they gave this man a $97,000 check. And you all look and say, are you serious? That's not worth it. That's a tragic end to a story. For that little amount of money, his life was wasted. What he's trying to help us see here is that story took place for that man. That's past. Your story is still to be lived. But if your story begins with the love of money, I guarantee you that your ending will be the same as his. That you can get to the end. And regardless of how much you've accrued, you'll look back and you'll say, that's a tragedy. The life that I missed, the life that I gave up was not worth it I want you to know that your life is worth more than money and everybody that pursues it doesn't find contentment they flee from it and so he builds up and he brings all of those things to help you and I see this one truth and that's this instead of chasing money here's what you do here's how you live your life Enjoy God's gift of the present, in the present. Instead of chasing money, enjoy what God has provided right in front of you. Look here at 5, verse 18. It says here, behold what I have seen to to be good. This is sandwiched in between tragedies. And he says, hey, y'all, here's some good news. Here's what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. 19. Everyone also to whom God, and I want you to just see in these last two verses how many times the word God and joy is mentioned. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with his heart in joy. What his aim in all of this is is to save you and I from the abusive relationship of the love of money. And that's just, you can love money. You can give your heart to it. You can pursue it and chase it. But do you know what? Money will never love you back. Money will always fail you. And the reason why I call it An abusive relationship is this one of the hallmarks or litmus tests of somebody that finds themselves in an abusive relationship. Is this at times when the flaws of the person that you're in relationship are exposed, they're quick to come to their defense. And that's how you and I are at times, right? Hearing how money and the love of it has sidetracked so many people to know that it's not going to provide what we hoped for. To know that it's going to lead us to a tragic and still on the inside. What you and I say, what you and I think is it, that may take place for them. But that's not going to be true for me. When Jesus talks about money in the Bible. It's by no mistake that he constantly sets it In contrast with God, like the text that we read, you cannot serve God and money. That money, in our hearts, is something that we long for, something that we love, something that we want at at all costs. And while money is not wrong, the love of it is, and I love how Trip put this months ago, sin doesn't make friends. Do you know what sin does? Sin takes captives. Idols master people. Idols take things that should serve us, and it turns it on its head, and it... it turns it backwards now where we serve it and we are mastered by it. Years ago, when my wife and I first got married. We got a dog and we named this dog Dulos, which is the Greek word for servant. And we had the dog for a few months. And do you know what took place? We gave the dog back because at the end of the day, the day I was like, I brought you in here to make me happy. And now what I found out is that the roles have been reversed. You're causing all types of mess and I am cleaning up your mess. I'm worse with you here. I brought you to serve me. You're supposed to think of me as master. But at the end of the day, if we were to judge how this whole thing works out, I think you're the one that's in charge. When the Bible talks about the love of money and a heart that longs for it, it paints this picture of us being enslaved, of it controlling us and that's where this makes so much sense look at verse 19 everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and and here power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil this is the gift of God The gift of God is not in the wealth because there are those that have wealth, but they don't have the power to enjoy it. The gift of God is the power to see money for what it rightly is. And here's one thing that you find out about slavery and being enslaved to something is that slavery is never brought to an end by good arguments and facts. Slavery is always brought to an end by power. By war, by somebody that's stronger, setting captives free, setting slaves free. And this is what God does. This is why we need more than advice. We need more than just money's not going to turn out for you well in the end. What we need is the power of somebody to set our hearts free from the slavery. Try to be content. Try as hard as you can. Go home and say, today, I'm just going to give thanks for all the stuff that I had, and I'm not going to long for money. And what you'll find out is that in your own power, you can't do it. Do you know what you need? You need the power of God to set you free. You need somebody who loves better than money does. And I want you to know that as we come to the text, as we think of the work that Christ did for us, Jesus did not die to make you rich. Jesus died to set you free from money being your master. And Jesus is a much better master than money. The way that he lived his life showed that money didn't have a hold of him. He was the one that mastered money. He re Ordered the way that everybody talked about money. Jesus had nothing. He wasn 't rich or wealthy or middle class by any stretch of the means, and he spent his life making people that were depressed, glad and joyful. You and I think that money's going to provide joy for me, and as long as it does, will be cool. Jesus had nothing. And he just didn't have joy for himself, but he had enough to give and to share to any and everyone. Money adds worries. The more of it that we get, the more worried that we are. Jesus takes worries. The more of him that we get, the more that we trust that he's actually going to provide for our needs. In Matthew 6, when he talks about money, his very next words are this. Don't worry about what you're going to eat. You don't bring it by the works of your hands. God takes care of you. And because of Christ's work on the cross, God doesn't just provide for our physical needs and provide us rest in this life. But him dying on the cross for our sins provides us rest in the life to come. Money will leave you. It leaves everybody. There was a guy that said, even the Egyptians that tried to take it with them in their graves were robbed. Nobody leaves with it at all. And so if it's the source of your contentment, at some point you will forfeit it. Hebrews chapter 13, 5 and 6, it'll be here on the screen, and I want, want, want you to see this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Jesus gave his life to cement this truth. that He's never going to leave us. Any security that you find in money is temporary, everybody will find themselves up against a problem that money cannot solve. And the good news is this, that your job, the source of your money, it will fail you. If you fail it, if you don't do what you should do, if you invest in the wrong place, it will fail you. You can love it all you want, but it won't love you back. Jesus is a better master because he loves those who don't love him back like they should. And that's the good, that's the God that we can serve. So freedom from the love of money does not come from us saying, I should just sit back and enjoy my stuff, but it comes from saying, God, I pray that you would fill my heart with a love for you that would crowd out this love. For money, and what we'll find out is that as we seek first the kingdom of God, as we pursue and get more and more of Christ, as we learn to trust Him more, submit to Him more, follow His leading more, reflect in His grace for us, that's where contentment comes from. Verse 20 For He will not much remember the days of His life because God keeps Him occupied with joy in his life. What he's saying here is that even in the trouble that we face in life, that our life will be filled with this disposition of joy that helps to crowd out even the most frustrating things of life. So like Paul says, I've learned the secret to being content. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. That comes on the heels of him saying, I've learned how to be content, whether I'm rich or poor, whether I have a lot or a little, the amount of money that I have has nothing to do with the contentment that I have. The affection that I have has everything to do with the contentment that I have. And to the extent I drown out my affection for money by reflecting on a master that loves me better than money, I'll be freed of the love of money. And being freed of the love of money, I'll finally be able to understand what contentment is in this life. This is the freedom that he gives to us, free from this slavery, a freedom for you to pass up on promotions, a freedom for you to be able to put your phone down at dinner and enjoy your family and your kids, a freedom for you to turn down opportunities that would take you away from your family and your church. And to be content with less and enjoy the good gifts that God has provided there. There's a brother in this church who called a few weeks ago and said, John, I have an opportunity to go to California for a few months. And to make tons of money. And and then to come back. But here's my fear. I've just started to embrace the relationships that God has provided for me here. And I know we all have the best of intentions in FaceTime, but I fear if I go there and come back, I'll have to start over. And I'm fine with what I make right now, but it would just be more there. And somebody that's freed from the love of money doesn't have to feel constrained by it but can feel like, no, I can really make the best choice, that I'm not here to serve money. Money is here to serve our great God. And and if we're freed from this, then you and I can see God as the giver of these good gifts here, that it replaces the work and the worry that we have with worship and thanks towards our God. It replaces the grind for more with gratitude for what we have. And we see that contentment comes from being grateful for what I have, as well as being generous with what I have. It frees us to give, it frees us to let go of this burden of trying to have more. It frees us to be proactive and to invest in eternity. Jim Elliott said this of time He is no fool. To give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He said it of time. You can't keep your time. So it's best to give it away to gain something that you can't lose. And that's the joy that comes from knowing that we've been a part of Christ's work here on the earth. And I think the same goes true for money. This is where the church enacts. Right? It says they sold all of what they had to take care of needs. And many people were added to their number. Why? Because the one thing that everybody in the world clamored after to get joy, they saw this group frivolously spending it and being filled with all of this joy. It would be like your neighbor throwing away hundreds of dollars in the trash can. You would look at him and say, You're either crazy, or you're really rich if you can just spend all of this stuff. This is the beauty of being freed from the love of money. It frees us to treat money in such a way that the world has to look at us and say, Y'all are either crazy or you have a rich of rich riches and wealth that I don't know of, let me know where your joy comes from because mine seems to run out, but yours seems to grow with the more that you give away. It frees us to give. And lastly, it frees us to spend our best days enjoying the gifts that God has provided right in front of us. You won't find satisfaction chasing money you will find it in pursuing our great God and being reminded of the great things that he's provided us right here and right now for us to get to know him better. And as our love of money decreases, I think that he provides us eyes to see the simple joys that he provides to us so graciously. My praise that we as a church would be content that we would be grateful for what God gives us and generous with what we have. And we can only do this to the extent that our Lord frees us from the love of money and replaces it with love for him. If you are here and you don't know that love, my prayer is that as we pray, that you would just cry out to a God who's ready to listen and to hear. Let's pray. Father, Father, We thank you that you don't leave us blind, but you expose us. You give us the truth about things that we are uh, enamored by. We're grateful that you've provided um, your son to show us what you're like. And Father, we ask, Lord, that you would change our hearts, that the contentment that we've worked for and haven't found, I ask that you would provide it to us. Give us grace, Lord, to enjoy the good gifts that you've provided here, to enjoy the families that you've given to us, the friends, the good meals. Help us not to sacrifice those things in pursuit of wind, Father. Help us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.